The music of Wayne Kramer. Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our December 16th, 2010 edition of the show, 4.09 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org, or you can catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. It's easy with the current state of affairs in the world to become a bit discouraged about prospects for solving the many massive crises that beset us. But perhaps we're missing something here. Maybe the situation is more hopeful. A convincing argument is made in that direction in a new new book called Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. Our special guest today is the author of that book, Jared Duval. He is a fellow at Demos, a New York think tank. From 2005 to 2007, he directed the Sierra Student Coalition, the national national student chapter of the Sierra Club and the largest student environmental organization in America. He graduated summa cum laude uh, from Wheaton College in Massachusetts in 2005. And at only 20 years of age, he was drafting policy briefs for Howard Dean's 2004 presidential campaign. Jared Duvall, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you. I've uh, been inspired by uh, reading your book, and as I said at the top of the show, show there sometimes it's uh, easy to become a bit discouraged, and I found a lot uh, to uh, be hopeful there. Uh, hopeful for there. So for our listeners who don't know, explain what is open source and what you mean by the open source revolution. Open source first um, came to public attention in the mid-1990s with the Linux operating system. Um, It was um, developed by a young computer programmer, um, Linus Torvalds, who was 21 years old at the time, and basically, he had the, the initial workings of um, the heart of an operating system, and he released that code to the public rather than keeping it proprietary and a, a kind of a um, private project. And he invited anyone in the world to access um, his code, to improve upon it, to um, add new pieces. And in this very global, collaborative, um, participatory way, uh, developed an operating system that runs um, computers now all around the world. Actually, 450 of the world's fastest supercomputers, of the world's 500 fastest supercomputers, now run um, the Linux operating system. And it was a first glimpse that we can create things that not only work, but are in many cases technically better than the more centrally managed, top-down hierarchical projects like the, the way that Microsoft creates operating systems, for instance. Um, and from there, we then saw Wikipedia, um, the world's largest collaborative uh, project in human history. Uh, anyone who uh, wishes to can go on and contribute information, um, help write articles. 
um, a free encyclopedia that's in, available to anyone with an internet connection. Um, and so I think the timing, and you mentioned the, the scale of our challenges, we've been able to see, you know, thousands and thousands of people come together to create these projects online. And I think what is an interesting question that I, that I explore throughout Next Generation Democracy is can we take that same approach and that same ethic to solving public problems, not just to creating an operating system or creating an encyclopedia, but in the very way that we go about social change organizing and the way that we practice democracy to solve our public problems. So, so this open source revolution is a thing whereby, as opposed to how we're used to things being this big top-down type of situation where corporate America or some b- other big entity is laying things down on us, and this is how it's going to be. This was more like self-empowering, people deciding for themselves collaboratively, this is what we want, this is what we like, this is what we need. And so now you're saying we need to apply that type of thing to our uh, our civic life, to our uh, dealing with those huge problems that we are in the midst of. Exactly, because the, the core principles that underlie uh, what open source is all about are transparency, participation, and collaboration. And there's no reason that those principles can't be taken uh, from an online space into an offline uh, way of, of solving problems. And, and I actually write about the leaders and innovators and organizations that are doing exactly that all around the country and the world right now. Yeah, can you give us an example of that? Well, my favorite one is what I open the book with in the, the first chapter. I write about... Um, Hurricane Katrina and uh, the challenge of uh, rebuilding New Orleans after that storm. And there's an organization called America Speaks that was founded in the mid-1990s with a mission of engaging citizens in governance directly. Um, Their founder, an amazing woman named Carolyn Lukensmeyer, she had been the chief of staff to the governor, governor of Ohio in the late 80s um, and then actually um, went to the Clinton White House. She helped facilitate the first um, cabinet meetings at Camp David for President Clinton at the beginning of his first term. Um, but she left the administration in 1994 because, as she told me in one of the many interviews we did together in her office, you know, sitting in the West Wing at the nexus of all of these different levers of power, um, the legislation, the Congress, uh, the, uh, the executive branch, uh, lobbyists, nonprofit organizations, the media, on and on and on, all of those um, sectors claimed to speak on behalf of the American public, but none of them wanted to engage citizens directly. And so what America Speaks does is takes technological innovations, things like uh, telecasting and individual keypad polling devices, to enable what they call 21st century town meetings. Um, In New Orleans, the way that this facilitation happened was that they had 3,000 people representative of that um, city's demographics by race, by income, by education. And everyone got issue briefing guides. Um, to read uh, beforehand. They all sat at tables with a trained facilitator going through issue by issue the pros and cons of the decisions that needed to be made in terms of 
how to move forward and create a comprehensive rebuilding plan for the city. Um, and in this way, um, deliberating together, um, the citizens of New Orleans created what's called the Unified New Orleans Plan, which um, is the blueprint that um, enabled federal funding to finally start flowing. The mayor had tried uh, an effort to come up with a, a plan um, for a year after Hurricane Katrina hit it and could not build enough public support for it because he did it in this very closed-off, kind of um, detached, uh, elite type of way that didn't engage um, people who really wanted to play a direct role in shaping the future of their city that they were returning to or in some cases had never left. It sounds like what you're talking about is what we're we're going forward with some technology to go backward to something good that has been lost, a sense of community. And so using all this high-tech uh, uh, apparatus and uh, things that we have, able to, to regain what is so hard to hang on to in many ways uh, in our modern age, that sense of community, of, of feeling connected with others and having a common purpose and common aspirations. Is that correct to put it that way? I think that's exactly right. And, and one of the things that I write towards the end of, of Next Generation Democracy is that harnessing the approach of open source will not take our democracy in a totally new direction, but rather it will enable us to realize its fullest potential and of its original promise. I mean, we've um, had opportunities for direct democracy um, and deliberative democracy, you know, since uh, Athens, Greece, and certainly uh, in New England, town hall meetings since uh, the 1700s. But it was always limited by... Um, a lack of technology to allow many people to deliberate simultaneously together. Um, and, and now we're being able to overcome that. And so I, th I think the way you phrased it is exactly right in that it's combining uh, very old wisdom about the importance of democracy, a word that comes from two Greek words, where it's demos and kratia, the people in power. Democracy is literally the power of the people. Um, and, and now some of these 21st century innovations that allow us to participate um, in more meaningful, direct ways. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Jared Duval, and we're talking about his book, Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. Jared, uh, <clears throat> let's talk about your background as an organizer and your work with the Howard Dean campaign. I found that uh, quite interesting and sort of remember that excitement uh, from the time of the Howard Dean campaign. And it'll be interesting to hear from uh, somebody that was right in there. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in both Vermont and New Hampshire, so I was familiar with Governor Dean uh, because he was the, the governor of one of my home states. And so when he first launched his presidential campaign, um, I became supportive very early and um, had set up to work as a volunteer on his campaign um, when he was, you know, his name recognition was about 1% nationally, and um, ended up in his Burlington headquarters for the summer in between my uh, sophomore and junior year of college as um, this revolution in terms of what's possible uh, in our politics now was really starting to take place. I mean, the Dean campaign was the first presidential campaign that showed 
that you can take on a party establishment by pooling uh, lots and lots of small dollar donations together and really bring power back to the um, grassroots. Um, it was the first campaign that really utilized um, online uh, forums to bring people together like meetup.com. Um, the Dean campaign for a while was the most popular uh, meetup topic uh, of the entire website. And so it was just a fascinating uh, experience to be working on energy and environmental policy issues for Governor Dean at the same time that there was all this innovation happening um, in terms of not only how you used online tools, but more importantly, how they could empower people to um, take offline action and feel like they were a vested um, part of this larger effort. And Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, you were uh, actually helping to draft policy briefs, and you were, what, 20 years old at the time? Yeah, that's the great thing about uh, starting with a presidential campaign that, uh, you know, is, is not one of the, the front runners. I mean, it's, it's amazing how... Um, I think that's been the story for generations now. Young people who are idealistic, who care about um, contributing, um, are able to uh, volunteer on presidential campaigns and end up with um, some significant responsibility if, if you um, prove yourself and, and work hard. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there are some campaigns that aren't that way. I'm sure that... Uh, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign had a lot more veterans, for instance, than uh, Howard Dean's campaign had four years earlier at, at the very beginning of it. But um, it, it is one of those environments that is, that is very dynamic, very fast-moving, and, and benefits people who uh, are coming in with a, a lot of energy and idealism. And so the, the Dean campaign... <clears throat> Because they weren't a front-runner campaign at the beginning and because they were, uh, you know, just not part of that Democratic Party establishment, that they they had to do things differently. They had to find a way to make things happen other than that way of getting those huge donations from the usual people and the, the usual communication-type uh, networks. So <clears throat> all of this... Uh, internet stuff and and i I remember you mentioned the meetups that was the first way i ever heard about meetup was uh i got some email from somebody from the dean campaign oh we're having this meetup in your neighborhood and it was fascinating and there was so much excitement about it and uh, it uh it was i think one of the things that was going on is that there was quite an anti-war uh uh, movement in, in in effect at that point, in that there was a, a real disgust with what had happened there, and there was there were many people out there who wanted a cam, uh, candidate who was unabashedly against the war, but was also somebody who was fresh and who was uh, just not your typical politician, and and I think that excitement. <clears throat> was uh, was there at the beginning and the the, the use of meetups and what what were some of the other things that the campaign used that were were new at that point well i think the whole approach to um fundraising was was one of the things that that really changed i remember there was a day when when dick cheney was hosting a two thousand dollar a plate dinner and uh, the campaign took a picture of, of uh, Governor Dean eating a $5 turkey sandwich. <laughs> and uh, 
the goal was to try and match the overall amount of money that Cheney's fundraiser would, but by just having so many more small donations pooled together uh, and modeling a new way of really uh, grassroots empowered fundraising, um, and and that happened, and that was that was very exciting. But I think that probably the the larger shift. Um, happened around, I had worked on, um, for instance, in 2002, I worked on a Senate campaign in New Hampshire, and one of the efforts we were trying to do was uh, to get students to who lived in New Hampshire but who went to college out of state uh, to get them to register while they were home over the summer for absentee ballots so they could vote in New Hampshire even, when they, even though they were at school in another state come November. Um, and I started working on uh, the text for this <laughs> this flyer and and email at the beginning of the summer, and I remember there were so many levels, so many hoops that I had to jump through to get approval uh, to do this very basic um, kind of voter registration effort that by the time it was cleared by the campaign headquarters down in Concord, all of, all, all of my friends and, and folks that were trying to get registered had, had already gone back to school and we'd missed a window. Instead, what the Dean campaign did was provide a larger vision, and certainly on big strategic questions, those were made by Governor Dean and by the campaign manager, Joe Trippi. But when it came to local organizing, it was really, we trust you, uh, use your creativity to come up with the events, with the ways that um, you are passionate about uh, doing voter registration or doing um, events to, to build support and, and let you run with it. Um, and I think that that's a type of empowerment that um, has, has only continued, uh, certainly with President Obama's campaign in 2008 as well. So was it kind of like a situation where you said they'd let you run with it and you'd do this and somebody else would do something a little differently and somebody else would have another idea and then the campaign would see which ones were bearing the most fruit and promote those types of strategies better? Is that uh, kind of what happened? I mean, certainly through the um, Dean for America uh, blog, you know, really creative ideas that uh, were kind of going viral were promoted um, so that other folks could kind of copy the the innovation and the creativity but it but it wasn't I, I, I don't even think it was that um, managed you know it was very decentralized a lot of stuff happening that only folks in local communities um, really knew about it I mean it would be impossible for for instance, the campaign manager or Governor Dean to, to know, you know, everything that was uh, decided on and, and that happened at those local levels. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, do you feel that the the Democratic Party establishment at the time felt threatened by uh, Dean or the way the Dean campaign was operating? Initially, I don't think they took the Dean campaign seriously. Uh but as um, he continued to gain uh, momentum and support in, in ways that they could understand, most notably money and polling numbers, um, there, was, there was a scramble to figure out how to uh, respond, certainly. But uh, I, I think that, you know, like a lot of innovation, it comes from unlikely places, and it's not going to be the, the folks who... Uh, want to continue um, doing things in a business-as-usual way. I mean, you usually don't get innovation from 
the folks who are already uh, running things and in charge. So uh, they, I think they understood uh, the power of it, but were slow in coming uh, to that realization. Yeah, well, and then the, uh, uh, Dean eventually did not get the Democratic nomination, and then after that became the uh, uh, Democratic uh, chairman. Was that his title? That's right. And, and but he was sitting only in that position for a short while, and I remember um, the 2006 campaign where Democrats were very successful, and many people gave Howard Dean and, and his 50-state strategy a lot of the credit. But there was another, it seemed, faction that did not want to give him so much of the credit, and some of the people were kind of giving more credit to Rahm Emanuel and some other players, and it just seemed that uh, then. Dean was kind of out of that position not too long after that. Do you have any thoughts about all that? Um, I, you know, I'm probably biased, but I, but I do think that, that Howard Dean's leadership, while he was chair of the Democratic National Committee, um, certainly helped lay a groundwork not only for victories uh, for Democrats in 2006, but going into 2008. I mean, he was uh, he, his foresight, I think, in a lot of investments in states that other Democrats wanted to write off helped uh, make uh, President Obama um, competitive in, or at least have the, the, the groundwork in place that, that uh, um, he could contest states and broaden the field or the map in terms of where the election was uh, happened uh, and, you know, led to... Um, you know, states being in play that folks, you know, wouldn't even consider a Democrat coming close, let alone win, like Indiana and North Carolina. Yeah, I think that's very true. I tend to agree with that, and but I, I don't think the some of the old guard uh, Democratic establishment, I think, is still, uh, for some reason, not wanting to uh, give uh, Dean and his revolution enough credit and sort of have, uh, I, I don't know, he just doesn't seem to... Uh, be uh, they're they're suspicious of him for some reason that that's just my my thought i don't know if you have any further insight on that but uh um is that about it you, well i, I mean? think I, I think that one of the reasons uh that that may be the case is that governor dean has has always uh you know not just been someone to kind of toe the party line but is is someone who is is very strongly in favor of uh, major reforms in in our country and things that you know may go against the interests of the party establishment, both on the Democratic and Republican side. Um, and so, but I think that it's all the more necessary that we need uh, leaders like him to be talking about how we can uh, reform uh, our government in in very uh, fundamental ways to uh, you know address. Governor Dean has for a long time been an advocate of citizen-owned elections or public financing of elections uh, to get corporate and, and union money, uh, you, know, ra- you know, not have that be the, the lifeblood of right. campaigns and have candidates be beholden to that. And, and that really does threaten the, uh, the uh, kind of business-as-usual old guard of the um, party headquarters. Yeah, I definitely get that feeling. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Jared Duvall. And we're talking about his book, Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. So you talk a bit in the book about uh, Web 2.0. What do you mean by that? 
So Web 2.0 is just refers to all of the websites like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube that the content of it is user-generated. So you participating in it are the one, you know, uploading the information for your profile or uploading videos or, or generating tweets. Um, things that, uh, the content that you create online rather than kind of just reading or consuming something that someone else has done. So the very interactive uh, element of, of the web that allows you to participate um, rather than, you know, just kind of, and observe or consume. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that as a uh, really uh, positive development and getting people more involved and uh, not being passive consumers of uh, information. Yeah, and I think that it's particularly powerful when you look at the uh, impact that open source and, and the related uh, trend of, of Web 2.0 have had on the generation that was coming of age at the same time that they were coming to public knowledge, and that's the millennial generation, folks now in their teens and 20s and, and early 30s. Um, and the, the media that you come of age with and the way that you use technology as you're growing up really can shape your overall um, worldview and your outlook of how things should work. Um, and that can then translate to your views of democracy and government. Um, and it has for the millennial generation, a generation that came of age, as some folks have said, as digital natives. Um, the Harvard <laughs> Institute of Politics has, has done surveys where they ask uh, the question, are you interested in Internet-based collaboration with government? A third of the millennial generation says yes. Uh, most other generations barely register in response to that question. Um, and so I think that this open source and the related Web 2.0 ethic of expecting to participate, have access to information and collaborate across boundaries is really going to, over the next um, decade and beyond, uh, uh, call for uh, some fundamental reforms in opening up government and, and decision-making so that we can benefit from the contributions, both in terms of wisdom and in ter- and expertise, and, and in terms of just the more practical, on-the-ground um, doing things that, that citizens have to offer and, and take policy-making uh, really out of the kind of closed-off, dark-paneled rooms with, with lobbyists and uh, whichever senator holds the, the key 60th vote. Um, that is the, the trend that I think... Um, is 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 coming, and that it can really help uh, revitalize our democracy. Yeah, I know. I when I was a young person, there wasn't even there was no internet. <laughs> so, yes, the way I relate to all of this, even though I'm open to all of it and think it's great, the way I relate to it is much different than the millennials you talk about. And so, it's like having grown up digital. Uh, all of that, this digital technology will have more impact on on those who have grown up digital. Is that right? That's that's right. And it doesn't mean that the only people to to lead uh, efforts in this direction will be young people. I mean, there are amazing leaders in the field of uh, um, government 2.0, like you know Tim O'Reilly, who wrote the foreword to to my book. Um, like uh, Mika Sifri, who co-founded the Personal Democracy Forum and works on issues around what he calls we government. Um, 
but it, it does mean that I think the um, natural base of support and the uh, momentum to um, uh, advance some of the efforts that these leaders are putting forward, who in many cases aren't millennials, but their base of support I think will increasingly be um, young people for whom this just seems common sense and, and the way that we have to go. We're speaking today with Jared Duvall, and we're talking about his book, Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. Jared, uh, do you have any information you want to give out to us, any websites you want to mention, or any events coming up or anything of that nature? Yeah, the, the main website for the book is nextgendemocracy.com. It has uh, links to my blog, links to upcoming events, a contact form if you want to be in touch uh, via email. Um, everything happens through that site. There's also links to the Facebook page, uh, Twitter, um, on and on and on. So Next Gen Democracy um, is, is the place to go if, if this sounds of interest to folks. Nextgendemocracy.org? Dot com. Dot com, dot com. Okay. And um, I think we definitely need to talk about WikiLeaks since it is so heavily in the news now. What are your thoughts on, on WikiLeaks as an organization and what has been the backlash to their recent leaks? Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's another example of, um, you know, for good or bad, how the Internet is changing the balance of power and enabling people who get access to information to share it very quickly, very widely. Um, and, you know, I have to be honest that I, you know, have, I'm conflicted about how I, how I feel about WikiLeaks because on the one hand I think that it is important and that it is vital and good that some information uh, is, gets out so that we can have an informed citizenry and we can um, hold leaders accountable if our policies are going wrong and if we, you know, know the impacts of, of what our leaders are doing. On the other hand, I, I do think that um, for folks who um, are serving this country or folks who are in other countries whose lives could be put in danger if very sensitive, confidential uh, information is, is leaked irresponsibly, um, then I think that that is the place that you need to draw the line in the sand about, you know, transparency is good up until a point, but I think that there are some things that there's a reason they're con confidential and um, we don't want to put people who are serving this country uh, in harm's way and put their lives in danger. And I have to be honest, I haven't read through uh, the cables I, uh, in full. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has. There's so many of them. But my understanding is that there is it, it's mostly information that will not put people's lives at risk and that is you know could be um, helpful to know, but that there are things in there that many in the intelligence and defense community are um, worried about. And I just think we need to be ever cognizant and, and vigilant about um, that balance between uh, informed access to information but also um, not putting people's lives in danger. Yeah, your point is well taken, and I think... Um, <clears throat> But it is interesting to me the the sort of reaction to all of this, and my sort of opinion on that is that this is kind of really threatening what WikiLeaks is about, and not not so much that the, anybody's going to be put into danger, but it, it it's threatening to the establishment that uh, they don't want uh, 
this sort of information to be democratized. And I, I don't think even WikiLeaks is arguing that governments don't need some secrets. But at the same time, I think the, the stuff some of the, they are putting out there is that you know, people really do need to know about this. We've been hoodwinked on so many different things. So some of this might have been out there. We might have actually uh, the, been able to prevent the Iraq War or been able to prevent 9-11. And, uh, I, and, and there are some people within the government who have actually even said that you know, nobody's been put into danger by any of this. But I, I guess that's still open for debate. But there does seem to be this really emotional backlash <clears throat> against yep. what they're doing. And I'm I'm a little <clears throat> excuse me a little concerned by that, and I <clears throat> I know <clears throat> excuse me I'm getting over a cold here still got a little congestion, but uh, and I know uh, even Congressman Ron Paul has sort of come to the defense of uh, WikiLeaks, so it's uh, yeah I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there, but I, I do uh, think there is some some good to be. Uh, said about what they're doing if uh maybe it does need some restraints on it but uh we had a rather right-wing uh, reactionary result to the this uh 2010 congressional midterm election uh this was driven uh, to a degree by fox news and right-wing radio the thing that's interesting though is that the the people influenced by that media are an older demographic, while the media you're talking about appeals to right. a much younger demographic who are definitely more progressive. So this certainly bodes well for a more progressive future, right? I think in the in the longer term, the the millennial generation, the demographics are in the favor of um, the Democratic Party, um, just because. I mean, if you look at 2008, um, millennials preferred Obama two to one over McCain, 66 to 33 percent. And in this last midterm election, where the under the under 30 uh, voters were the only age group to prefer uh, Democrats, 57 to 40 percent. Every other older age group preferred Republicans. And if you're over 65, you prefer Republicans um, by 20 points. So there is this huge generational gap in support for the parties that I think boils down to the question of the role of government. Um, for folks who are older, um, 4 in 10 people who are older than 65 report supporting the Tea Party. If you're under 30, that number is less than 1 in 10. Mm-hmm. And what the Tea Party professes it's all about is um, about the size of, of government. It's too big. And that has been uh, that I- 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 an issue for uh, voters who are now over 65 for a long time. They helped elect Ronald Reagan on a message in, uh, that government isn't the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're seeing happen is that for millennials, that's kind of a tired, misleading debate. It's not about the size, big versus small, of government. It's about how open and transparent is our government, how uh, nimble is it, how, how, how good is it at... Um, engaging citizens in meaningfully, uh, meaningful ways to participate and collaborate and solve problems together. Um, and on that score, you know, it's, I think what happened in the midterm election is that the president and the Democrats in Congress did more than enough to stoke the fears and anger of older voters whose chief concern was the growing size of government with you know, the stimulus and with health care. But for younger voters who won the Democratic primary for President Obama and turned what would have been a close election 
in the general into a landslide for him. Um, what they were voting for was the slogan, Change We Can Believe In. Right. And in a more substantive manner, they were voting for um, fundamental change in the way that Washington works. And there was this really telling exchange between the president and John Stewart uh, on The Daily Show about a month ago where um, Stewart said to him, you know, if I can condense all the criticism of your administration into one main point, it's this, that you know, you ran on fundamental change of the way that Washington works, and, and that hasn't happened at all. And the president basically said, you know, that's, that's right. I, <laughs> I haven't worked on changing the way that change happens because I came into office facing an emergency situation where I just felt like I had to get as much done uh, as quickly as possible, even if it was using kind of the status quo business as usual mechanisms. And I think that disillusioned a lot of folks, you know, especially when you saw the way that health care happened and the outsized influence of eight health care lobbyists for every member of Congress. Um, and so if, if Obama wants to reconnect to that promise and potential, I think he's going to have to go back to what originally motivated millennials, which wasn't a vision of a big or small government. It was a vision of a more open and collaborative and effective government that would engage us to solve some of the great challenges of our time. Yeah, and so, and I think w- everything you just said is why many of these younger voters uh, stayed home in 2010. And uh, so, yeah, if Obama wants to be successful, he's going to have to figure out a way to get those people back out in 2012. I mean, it, it, is it, it, if we take Obama at his word that this is what he really wants to do, change the way Washington operates and wants more transparency and all of that, uh, is it is it even possible for him to do that? Uh, I mean, yeah. other than, I mean, because I, I feel like there is this entrenched establishment that we can do something about, but how quickly can that be taken apart? So give me your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really fair question, and it's, and it's an important one. And one of the, I, I think it's, there's two parts to this. One is that the president has taken a very hands-off approach when it comes to um, trying to um, work with Congress. I mean, the calculation at the beginning was let Congress do its thing on the health care legislation, and then we'll kind of come in at the end. Um, and I, I think that there hasn't been enough of an appreciation for the power of the bully pulpit, the power of when uh, President Obama first came into office to basically say, I was elected for uh, on a mandate with a mandate for change and to actually um, try and pressure uh, Congress and engage the American people to keep up the momentum um, post-inauguration. But on, on the other side of the coin, it's true that, that you know, the root of the problem is really with the way that Congress works, and especially the Senate. I mean, if you <laughs> just take the filibuster rule, which was used and abused more than any other uh, session of the United States Senate um, last year, uh, it allows senators who, you only need 40 senators, and because, you know, that's uh, allocated by state rather than population, you can have 40 senators who only represent 7.5% of this country's population. And they can hold up anything that's in the broad national interest, as we've seen them do time and again, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, advance their own uh, individual or state agenda. And I think that's really holding back our ability to make tough, important decisions uh, for our nation. 
Um, and there's a, a wonderful senator from New Mexico, Tom Udall, who's leading a uh, rules reform effort called the Constitutional Option. I mean, the funny thing is, for all that we talk about the filibuster, it's nowhere in the Constitution. What is in the Constitution is that the Senate has the, the power to set its own rules and how it will operate at the beginning of every session. And so Senator Udall's effort would stop this obstruction, this abuse of this arcane rule, um, by calling a vote at the very beginning of the next Senate session, uh, asking uh, or having the Senate uh, operate on simple majority rule and, and only needing 51 votes to pass legislation. It seems like it's gaining momentum, and I think that in the long term, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, uh, I mean, there were so many good pieces of legislation in the House that died last year just because it's impossible uh, to mm-hmm. get sixty votes for something right now. So you think there's and and, and, and in the foreseeable future too. So it's just a, an effort that that I think needs to succeed if our if our government is going to really be effective at getting things done again. Uh, so does it look like uh, there's a pretty good chance that you'd all could get this uh, passed? I think a lot of it depends on um, public pressure. Um, I think that it's uh, there are a lot of you know it's it's interesting that um, so much of the support for this rules reform effort is um, coming down to um, how long you've served. So for people who were elected this past election or the election or two before that, you know, really came into office wanting to get things done and just are so frustrated by uh, the ineffectiveness of the Senate. They are really, it's mostly the freshman, younger uh, senators, especially Democrats, who are lining up behind this effort. Um, and, you know, some of the uh, senators who've been office in office for longer seem to be more skeptical of it. But um, I, I think that if, if citizens uh, recognize that this is one of the root-level problems blocking change on so many of the issues we care about, and... Um, uh, you know, express our views that this is a reform that, that should happen, that, that we might be able to, to build um, enough support to, for it to happen, if not, if not this session, then in, in a session in the not-too-distant future. So, yes, if that's something you want, uh, get on your uh, computer, and uh, you can send a, an email to your senator and uh, tell him or her to support that. So, yeah, it does seem that there's a certain timidity uh, among the Democrats, and, and actually it, it, the Republicans abused this so much for the last session, and uh, the Democrats could have uh, uh, voted on uh, changing these procedural rules uh, back then and haven't. And there's, uh, again, with Obama as well, certain timidity. Uh, uh, you, you said he won by, he had a mandate. Uh, Bush barely won the 2004 election, um, and he... Some people think he actually didn't. And uh, he was running around saying he had a mandate, whereas Obama clearly won by a huge margin and not behaving like he has a mandate. So I, I don't know what that's all about, why there there seems to be a different sort of uh, uh, style of, of behaving, uh, at least among the current parties. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, the problems right now is that whenever we we elect folks and they go to Washington, D.C., whether they're representatives or senators or a president, um, I think that there, it becomes somewhat like a bubble. I mean, there was this really interesting story, uh, the senator from Indiana, Evan Bayh, who decided that he was going to retire rather than run for re-election, and he gave an interview explaining why he made that decision. 
and he said his father, Birch Bai, had been a senator from Indiana as well. And he said, in my father's day, you know, he, he told me that uh, you would govern for four years and then you would campaign for two. And he said, after my last election, the very first conversation me and my staff had was, how are we going to raise enough money to win the next election? And it wasn't govern for four, campaign for two. It was campaign and raise money for six years. And I think that what uh, citizens across this country realize with the influence of money, with the influence of lobbyists, we now have two dozen lobbyists for every single member of Congress, um, that it's almost impossible for the authentic public interest to be represented anymore. And it's not because there's quid pro quo corruption, you know, someone buying someone off. But I think what does happen is the amount of money and the amount of time it takes to run for office and, and to achieve the number one goal of, of politicians, which is re-election, requires that you're on the phone with very rich, very elite people um, for the vast majority of your time. And I think it skews your worldview and skews your sense of what is really important. And I think that's one of the reasons, for instance, that we haven't seen as much attention both in style and substance, both in rhetoric and action, um, to, uh, in terms of uh, um, employment and jobs. Because, you know, that's less, the, the, the rich donors are interested in, uh, you know, other things rather than, um, you know, middle class voters who are, are losing their jobs. And, and that's their chief concern. And so I do think that there becomes a disconnect when you uh, section yourself off and are only listening to the folks who are funding your campaigns. Yeah, they're they're right there. They're right on your back. And, yeah, we have a situation now. It's like Wall Street's doing fine. I mean, the corporations are turned around, making great profits, but they're not hiring anybody here in America, and it's a real problem. And and I think what you're talking about in next generation democracy is uh, definitely things we can use to help turn that around, strategies, yeah. techniques. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so we're just about out of time here. And, yeah, we're talking to Jared Duvall, and the book is Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. So, Jared, uh, anything else you want to leave us with to make sure we kind of understand what it is you're talking about? Well, just on that last point, I, I, I want to emphasize that there are efforts um, to uh, have clean elections, to have citizen-owned elections, and, and address that problem of corporate and union and, and, and uh private money uh, determining so much of our public agenda. I would encourage folks to check out, for instance, fairelectionsnow.org. The Fair Elections Act um, would create a system of public financing for elections. It passed the House uh, the last session. Surprisingly, (laughs) right, it did not pass the Senate because of the threat of the filibuster, of course. But um, that's a good thing that's happening. There are states that are pioneering these clean elections uh, laws, Arizona, Maine, the state I live in now, Connecticut, uh, my state representative uh, ran against and beat a, a, a wealthier opponent who spent three times as much money, um, but he ran with uh, uh, public financing and had more time to talk to voters and talk about real problem-solving efforts um, and, and, you know, policy routes forward, and, and he was able to win. And so I do think that there are things bubbling up to cause uh, give us cause for hope. And those are that's really what I tried to do with Next Generation Democracy is tell the stories of those people and organizations that uh, can serve as a 
spark of creativity for where our democracy can and should go um, and give us some inspiration in trying to get it there. All right. Well, I'm feeling more hopeful, and I really, uh, yes, uh, look forward to this younger generation uh, inspiring all of us. And uh, I know we've, uh, older generation, have have done our share of uh, good things, but we've done our share of screwing things up as well. And going to so, take all of us together. That's it, for sure. It sure is. And uh, your website again, Jared. It's nextgendemocracy.com. NextGenDemocracy.com. Jared Duvall, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Great to be with you, Robert. All right. Take care. Yes, Jared Duvall and uh, that book again, Next Generation Democracy, What the Open Source Revolution Means for Power, Politics, and Change. So we're just about out of time here on Out the Rabbit Hole. I'll remind you once more that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. All right. Matt Kaplan is just about ready to go. He'll be up in about two or three minutes with his usual... Thursday early evening fair. That is Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And uh, so, yes, this is Robert Larson saying I'll have more wonderful information and thoughts for you next week here on Out the Rabbit Hole. And I will be talking to you then. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org.